Now back to Talk and Tunes. Talk and Tunes, and we're talking with John Russell and Rick Hickman about some of their wonderful interviews that they did back in the day when they did the Saturday Morning Jukebox. Last guy on the list I got here, Ron uh, Dante. Ron Dante. Oh mm-hmm. man, that was a that was an interesting. Uh, that was kind of a, an interview that when we set it up, we thought, how interesting is this going to be? He's kind of the voice of the Archies. Yeah. You know, how how much mileage are you going to get which, out of that? Which is kind of now. I had the Archies lunchbox. You had the the monkeys. <laughs> I had the Archies. Well, actually, yeah, but that's because you were a Betty and Veronica fan. Yeah. I was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like. <laughs> I was hop. You know, the uh, what's what's that? How that? about Jughead? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that jughead man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, do you do you remember the the po- did you he tell you anything about the post cereal? Remember the post cereal when he came out with the records on the back and they had sugar sugar on the back? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. it was like the sugar bear. I think it was uh, the sugar. What do they call that? Sugar. Yeah, sugar. Sugar. sugar lots sugar. of sugar smacks. Thank you. Yeah. Lots of sugar smacks, yeah. yeah, was, yeah but on the back, they had the, the cutout records, and you had uh, uh, Jingle Jangle, which was one of the Archie's tunes, yeah, and, yeah. and Sugar Sugar. And, right. Oh, yeah. I was a big, big fan of that. Yeah. No, he started out as a... Uh, Ruined my dad's record player, but anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he started out just a lot like Barry Manilow, writing jingles yeah, and yeah, singing okay. jingles and stuff like yeah. that, and then they needed a voice for the Archie's, and he did that. He also... What was the what was the, the pop song that he had? I mean, he had several of them, but I mean, you would never know it was him because it wasn't under Ron Dante. It was... Uh, was it Love Grows or My Rosemary? No, it wasn't that one. No. Um, There's a lot of those people I'm, out there. Though. I'm not going to remember either, but of course, he became a writer at the Brill Building. Yes, he did. Yeah. Which was huge. Sure. And so he would be writing. Uh, he, they Back then, they had a lot of these groups that really weren't groups. I mean, it was like the, the grassroots were really was a PJ Sloan that put that together. Right. That was part of a, a, a wrecking crew thing as well. And then all of a sudden, these things would hit. And they say, "Oh, we got to put a band together." Well, that's kind of like you know, that's what kind of would would happen. Yeah. And so he had Dante had a lot of that type of stuff, and he would be like the lead singer on people songs that you wouldn't, you know, they'd have a whole nother oh yeah yeah uh, group and all that type of stuff. Also, the thing that was really gave him legs as far as being able to talk to him was he was a producer. Okay. He produced because of his relationship with uh, Barry Manilow back mm-hmm. when they were recording. Um, jingles together um barry king was there more than jingles <laughs> yeah <laughs> but maybe but uh he wound up producing the first seven barry manilow albums okay and hel- helping arrange that type of stuff of course you had mandy and well oh, yeah. barry yeah. winds up taking over and you would have never really known that how important he was yeah, it was a clive up, davis yeah thing yeah. he winds up producing share yeah. Um, I forgot how there was just a lot of people that you'd say, yeah. "Holy cow!" That this guy really behind the scenes really did a lot of stuff. So yeah, it was turned a, to be a lot of depth in his resume yeah. that you know we had to uncover. Yeah, we thought it was just going to be sugar, sugar. I mean, yeah. we we, <laughs> we we would we'd hoped it wasn't going to be that. You know, we thought, okay, how are we? And then all of a sudden, you know, we did a little bit more right. Well, that's what we did. We read up on him, and yeah, we, yeah. we found out that okay, there's a little bit more depth to him. Well, that's, so, you know, when I first got my first top forty Billboard top forty book, it was just amazing. Some of the stories you actually right. sat there and read them. You know, sure, because it was amazing what, what you came up with and how many different people worked in so many different bands and. Yeah. It got started. And now it's the Saturday Morning Jukebox Legends Spotlight. I recall just walking down the street Trying to escape the city heat I saw her from the corner of my eye 
Yeah, she looked so good I thought I'd die My heart went bang, shang, lang Bang, shang, lang Bang, shang, lang Bang, bang My heart went bang, shang, lang Bang, shang, lang Bang, shang, lang Bang, bang We are most proud to welcome a gentleman who took his love of music at a young age to the top of the charts and into our hearts as a respected singer and incredible producer. The careers of some of your favorite artists were entrusted to this man's talents. He is also a Tony and Grammy Award winner. He's done so much work that you know, and even more work that you love but don't realize came from his efforts. It's a privilege to welcome into the legend spotlight Mr. Ron Dante. Hey guys, good to see you. Good to be here. And you came from a New York background, and we're lucky to be a part of a family that really loved music, but you seem to have had the type of childhood that we wish kids still had today. Well, of course. I grew up in a, a very musical household, you know, with great parents. Uh, my dad sang all over the place. I came from a big Italian family, so there was a lot of music at the weddings. Even at the funerals, there was music. Everywhere was music. And uh, it was just great growing up there. Uh, I remember getting inspired by Elvis on on TV, as millions and millions of musicians did, and that that like set my course for my life. Now I understand that there was a a lucky break, no pun intended, or maybe it was a pun intended, that actually led you to music. A broken arm, right? Yes, I kind of was. I was playing Tarzan. I fell out of a tree, <laughs> busted my arm up really badly, and the doctor said to me uh, and my mom, she said, "Well, you know, he's going to have a stiff wrist all his life. He should." exercise it every day, either by, you know, squeeze a ball or maybe play an instrument. And, of course, I was so inspired by Elvis, uh, I said, I'd, I'd like to play guitar. Wouldn't that be fun? And my dad went out, got me a cheap guitar, and uh, it, it, therein started my musical career. And you also began writing music as you're learning to play and become more proficient on that instrument. Now, back in that era, every kind of music was really spotlighted. What was the kind of stuff you were beginning to write? Well, I, I was writing, uh, of course, when I got into my writing years, uh, which was like the early 60s, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of great stuff around, the Everly Brothers and, uh, you know, some of those early doo-wop groups. But when the Beatles popped on the you know, charts and, and, and I heard She Loves You, uh, it kind of inspired me to write that kind of music. And uh, I just, especially guitar, it was all guitar-oriented. So I could play guitar, I could sing. So, so of course, I started to write and that was that. The Beatles were a big influence. The Four Seasons, uh, the Beach Boys, a lot of that stuff really resonated with me. Now, for John and me and most of us that have gone into radio, that's not exactly a career that makes families jump up and down on the sofa and cheer. They want us to be CPAs or doctors or something like that. Obviously, you were starting to make known that you would love a career in music. Was it something that made your family happy? Yes, uh, I must say, there was totally supportive my dad owned a shop that made car coats for children and things and he said i don't want you part of this business you have a voice uh and can play guitar i, I they supported me to do, to go into the music industry and helped me enormously uh actually i formed a group at 14 years old and uh we played cyo centers uh you know on weekends and i actually had a new year new year's eve gig at 14 with my group the persuaders mm. and uh and uh, I made like 70 bucks. 
And my dad worked for 50 all week. I said, so this was like the career I wanted. I said, this is this is a great career. How did you wind up? What was your big break to actually get this to be in something that uh, that you could really do seriously in, in terms of, you know, the, the rest of your, your life, really? The big break came when I met Don Kirshner, uh, the man from Rock Concert. But in the 60s, he was the biggest music publisher in, in the country, in the world. Uh, he had a music uh, publishing outfit called Aldon Music, Alden Music, based in uh, right near the Brill Building in New York City. And I was fortunate enough to be introduced to some of his staff writers at 17 years old, and uh, they took me in to see Mr. Kirshner. And he was a great guy, one of these really nice fellas, uh, loved music, loved songwriters and singers. Uh, in, in the office that, that day there was Carol King, Tony Orlando, and, and, uh, and uh, Neil Sedaka. I mean, it was just like magic. I walked into this office and I said, well, this is the place I'd like to be. Mr. Kirshner liked my songs uh, and loved my voice. And he signed me to a publishing deal on the spot. And that was the door opening. I figured if a man this successful likes my stuff, I could have a career in music. And, uh, And I have to thank him for it. You know, a, a lot of folks, you know, they, they come from someplace other than New York and, you know, all of a sudden they're they're intimidated by this big city and all that stuff. But it had to be a heck of a, uh, I guess, a, a comfort zone for you, Ron, that you were able to, to land a job right, you know, in your hometown or right near your hometown, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was it was it was a gift. Yeah. I mean, of course, living in, in the borough of Staten Island, which is my, my, where I grew up, uh, I had to take, at the time, there, were, there wasn't even a bridge that connected us to Brooklyn and then Manhattan. So I would take a bus to the ferry, I'd take the ferry across the bay, and then I'd take a subway up to uh, the music industry on 50th Street and Broadway. And uh, that, was my, that was my commute. And it was just, just great. It just prepared me for hard work and, and being uh, consistent. And uh, I was very lucky to be born in the New York area, I must say. Now, how old were you when you actually had the meeting with, with Don Kirshner? You were just a, you were just a pup, weren't you? Yeah, I just had turned, uh, I was turning 17. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, it was an amazing time for me to, to get out there and do it. But I knew this is what I wanted to do. And, uh, I, I, you know, I felt I could sing at least. I had a, I, and I could play guitar and I could, I could actually write a song. So I figured I had a shot at this career. But uh, I must say, being in the Kirshner office, it was like going to a college, mm. a, being a specialty college, where you could, I could listen to Carole King in the next cubicle writing a song, or, or Neil Sedaka and Howie Greenfield writing a song next door, and, and learn. When they left, I would go in and play the piano and, and try to do what I could do to make, uh, to make my songs better. You know, Rick and I are always fascinated by the stories of Eldon Music and then the Brill Building, which I think was just across the street, and I know you've had, you know, you, you toured that places as well. You know, the, the one thing that I always pictured was it was one of those things where people went to work at 7 in the morning, punched a clock, and somebody said at 5.05, hey, we need one more song. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't like that, but, but what was it? Can you kind of explain what that whole, that whole atmosphere was like back then, uh, Ron? Well, it was it was it was like a like a college campus almost. Uh, people would go in never early though. You'd never musicians and songwriters right into <laughs> deep into the night and work until two and three in the morning. They they never get up at, at six and go to the office. You'd you'd get in there about ten ten thirty each day. And uh, and and uh, Mr. Kirshner had a, a music guy who would tell us what we had to do this week. They would say, oh, uh, Bobby V or, the, or Gary Lewis or uh, Mickey Most from. Uh, from England, who was producing Hermits, Hermits, and the Animals, was coming in uh, this week and uh, prepare some songs for him. 
and uh, run them by Don and the music guy, and uh, we'll we'll see if we can do some demos on those songs. So we would kind of prepare for that week. Uh, I would go in. I'd, I'd uh, usually I was doing backgrounds or lead vocals on demos for people like Carol King and Neil Sedaka, or some of the. There was a, there must have been 50 songwriters in this office that came in, uh, you know, and and used it as a base. So I, w- I would I would be doing demos during the day, doing oohs and ahs and backgrounds. I did demo for how we got to get out of this place and run to him. You know, I did a bunch of a uh, bunch of uh, demos on songs that became hits. And uh, it was it was it was a very exciting time. You didn't even want to break for lunch, you know. You would you just hang in the office and 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 get the vibes. Everybody was a little competitive, so we you know you, the songwriters would be trying to compete with each other, write a better song. Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde were there writing. You've lost that love and feeling. I mean, that, that's a tough one to compete with. Sure. Now you know you mentioned some of those folks like the Drifters and and the Righteous Brothers were, that they were writing songs for, particularly or songs made to order, I guess. Now, were you told when you were singing a demo, for instance, say, "Hey, we're we're pitching this to the Drifters, or this is for the Drifters," so you'd have to kind of do the Drifter style or whatever the situation was? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we would um, definitely make it right for the artist. If it was a song for uh, Connie Francis. There'd be a girl singer. I'd be doing backgrounds, but there'd be a girl singer who sounds like Connie in same range, same vocal range. So, uh, yeah, no, they pitched it uh, specifically for artists. It's so funny. Some of the songs that were pitched for one artist, a, a totally different type of artist picked it up and made it a hit. You know, like, it's, it's amazing what was going on. The Shirelles, you know, Will You Love Me, Still Love Me Tomorrow, was, was pitched to another artist, and Shirelles picked that song up and, and made it a hit. You know, you, you were with these guys. I mean, you know, like uh, Goffin and King, and you mentioned Man and Wild. They were, you know, they were songwriters, obviously, but, you know, now we think of them as icons. I mean, this is 50 years later, and the body of work behind him and all that. I mean, you were kind of seeing them at the ground level. I mean, you, uh, talk to us about that. I mean, were they, they were just kids like you were, certainly, weren't they? Well, they were very young. They were very, they were in their young twenties. I was only seventeen, so I was right. myself and Tony Wine, who was also in the office. She was sixteen. We were the kids in the office. We were the teenagers. But uh, Man and Wild, and you know uh, Neil and Howie Greenfield, uh, they were all in their young twenties. They were writing music for their own generation. This was a big turnabout from older writers writing for kids. This was younger people writing for younger people, and uh, it worked. It worked. Uh, the, you know, Carol King came up with Locomotion and, and made her maid, Little Eva, a star because she sang it. I mean, it was like there was such exciting things going on. You know, you had no way of knowing that these songs are going to be so iconic. Like here, 50, 60 years later, they're a part of our, our DNA. I mean, there's I mean, that back in the day, it was kind of, hey, if you can get a hit and be on the charts for a couple of weeks and maybe have a career for a year or two, hey, you, you were the king or queen of the world, weren't you? It's, it's true. We, we, we didn't realize that it, uh, the music that was being made would last so long. Uh, it was good music, though. It was they were good songs, and and they were fun records. And the technology picked it up, so you could actually reproduce it in the future, because it was it was done in such a way that you could copy it and digitize it now. So, um, you know, it, it was it was an interesting time. We we knew it was good. You you felt you felt it was very good. You felt it it, it, it caught something like. So certain songs, when they get recorded and the right band is put together, the right vocalist, it's like it's like catching lightning in a bottle. It was it, it happened, and you can almost feel the energy in a room saying, "Wow, this this came together just perfectly. Somebody's going to like this." 
and and look at it. It's lasted, you know, so long. Look at the Beatles. Sure. You know, look at the Beatles. They'll be like, you know, a hundred years from now, they'll still be playing Beatles music along with Bach and Beethoven. Uh, talk about uh, your your um, really the the detergents. You you wound up starting that uh, that group or being a part of that group, kind of a novelty song group. Talk to us about that, if you would, Ron. Well, I was a st- as a staff writer at Kirshner's um, publishing firm. I had two friends there. I was writing with Danny Jordan and Tommy Wynn. And Danny's uncle was a, 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 a successful songwriter. Uh, his name was Paul Vance. He had written Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini and a, a couple other hits. And he came up with this idea to parody the Shangri-La's leader of the pack. And he called Danny, said, bring Ron over and, and Tommy, and you'll, you guys will be the voice and the voices on this record. And so we did it. We acted. We sang. We did it in five or six pieces. We never heard it put together until about three or four weeks after when they uh, it came out as a group called the detergents is he really going out with her i don't know look here he comes now let's ask him hey murray is it true betty's wearing your ring mm-hmm who's that banging on the piano i don't know you going out with her tonight you bet your fur by the way where'd you meet her i met her one day at the laundromat she turned around and smiled at me Yes, we see. And that's when I fell in love with the leader of the laundromat. My folks were always putting her down. Down, down. Because our laundry came back brown. Brown, brown. I don't care if they think she's bad. I'll never forget the hurt and the funny look in her eye. She grabbed my laundry and ran into the street, directly into the path of a runaway garbage truck. I yelled, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out!
Who's that banging on the piano? I don't know. It sold about 900,000 singles on Roulette Records. Man. Of course, we never got paid from <laughs> Roulette Records because they were owned by the mob at the time. <laughs> but it was a great thing. We went out on the road and we toured with the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars for about a year, coming on after the Shangri-Las. The Shangri-Las would go out and do Lever the Pack, and we'd come out and do Lever the Laundromat. <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it was a goof, and it was fun. We were the first Weird Al type of group. John and I will be back with more of the Legend Spotlight in the incomparable Ron Dantes. Now back to Talk and Tunes. Talk and Tunes, and we're talking with John Russell and Rick Hickman about some of their wonderful interviews that they did back in the day when they did the Saturday morning jukebox. Last guy on the list I got here, Ron uh, Dante. Ron Dante. Oh mm-hmm. man, that was a that was an interesting. Uh, that was kind of a, an interview that when we set it up, we thought, how interesting is this going to be? He's kind of the voice of the Archies. Yeah. You know, how, how much mileage are you going to get out of it? Which is kind of you know, I had the Archies lunchbox. You had the the monkeys. I had the Archies. Well, actually, yeah, but that's because you were a Betty and Veronica fan. I was. Yeah, yeah. I, I was hop. You know, the what's, what's that? How about Jughead? <laughs> Welcome back to the Saturday Morning Jukebox Legend Spotlight. And we're back with more of our lively discussion with Ron Dante of the Archies, the Cufflinks, and a famed producer. Who else was on the bill during those caravans, and did you enjoy that? I loved it. I was only 19 at the time, so I was... I was and I, little Anthony the Imperials were on the bus with me. Freddie and the Dreamers, Herman's Hermits, uh, Freddie Cannon. You know, I made friends that I've stayed friends with all these years. Wow. And uh, Peter Noon is still a close, close friend of mine. And uh, it was just great. And we, at one place, we stopped in Philadelphia for a show, and we opened for the Rolling Stones. And no kidding, we went on just before the Rolling Stones, my group in the church, and they started to throw records at us to get us off stage. We want Nick. You know? But it was so cool to meet a Mick Jagger at, in 1965 when Satisfaction had just come out. It was just like, wow, this is, this is, I know this is a dream. Talk to us about the Archies. Obviously, that is the, the, the thing that uh, really just skyrocketed your, your career. How did that all come about, uh, Ron? Well, yeah, again, it was uh, Don Kirshner, uh, his vision for the group. He had made the monkeys, of course, put hmm. them together with the musical people and the producers and the writers and given them, you know, triple platinum albums when their show first debuts. So uh, the TV company Filmation was doing this animated uh, series for Saturday morning called The Archies, and he said, well, make them a group, make them a singing group. I'll put together some singers and songwriters and producers. And sure enough, he brought in my friend Jeff Barry to produce and write. I ended up 
being the lead singer of the group. I had heard about it. I heard they were cutting tracks. I called Don Kirshner. I said, I want to come over and audition for the uh, lead voice. And I went over and auditioned for uh, Don Kirshner and uh, Jeff Barry and got the role. I actually recorded that night, and we did one of our first singles. And we went on for like four years of, uh, of, of a TV series. And, of course, Sugar Sugar came out of that mix. And, boy, was, was that lightning in a bottle, as I said. Take care of the kissing booth while we're singing, Sabrina. Okay, everybody, here we go with our new hit record, Sugar Sugar. I mean, it was like number one all over the world. It took off. And, and here, as you mentioned, Don Kirshner had already, you know, put the monkeys together with putting the music and television together. Now here were the Archies, the same type of deal. Talk to us about your situation when, when Sugar Sugar goes to uh, number one all over the world. I mean, your face necessarily isn't associated with that. I mean, you're a cartoon character. Uh, you know, there was a certain amount of anonymity uh, with, with your career at that point, wasn't there? There was, and I signed on for that. Uh, that was part of the deal. They said, listen, this is not going to make you a star. 
but you are going to do very well with this deal because it's 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 a TV show and we're putting out albums and records and uh, you'll be working and I I just wanted to work and sing. Uh, I had been singing commercials uh, from Madison Avenue during that time, and I was getting used to the fact that my voice was on the radio all the time for different products, Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, American Airlines, Budweiser. So I was used to being anonymous, and so my ego wasn't hurt. I was just so proud to be part of a number one worldwide record. Uh, A single works all, you work all your career to get something that's substantial, that you know you can look back on and say, well, they can't take this away from me. I did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was very, I was f- fine with it. Mr. Kirshner uh, promised me a solo album out of it and a big push, which he gave me. But the people seemed to want the Archies more than the, the solo push. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, things happen that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was fine with it. While the anonymity certainly took a great deal of maturity on your part, even at a young age, there must have been a point when sugar, sugar breaks, or even with the detergents, when it was that first time that you got to hear yourself unexpectedly on the radio. Share that emotion with us. Well, it's, it's, it's like magic. You're driving in your car somewhere, or, or somebody calls you and says, you're on the biggest radio station in town, and they're playing your record once an hour. An hour. So I, I was thrilled with it. I mean, I just, you, can't, you can't be happier. At one point, I, was, I had two ghost groups, the Archies, and you'll mention probably my group, the Cufflinks, yeah. that had a record called Tracy. And at one point, the biggest station in town, every hour was playing both of my records. <laughs> <laughs> and, a commercial, and a commercial that I saw. In between. Right? Man. And, right? and they so, didn't know. And I kid you not, that really happened. And it was like... <sighs> This is a this is a dream come true. The, the, the promises of working hard and and up, upping your game, uh, you know, creatively each day works. And uh, I was just I was very blessed to have that happen to me in my lifetime. It was like all Dante all the time, wasn't it? <laughs> it really was. <laughs> well, the only thing, other thing I could have do has been on a corner giving out my you know my picture. <laughs> you know, and and the 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 Archies, like you said, that turned into such a great gig for you. Now, you actually sang harmony with yourself on a lot of those albums, hmm. didn't you? A lot of those songs, right? I mean, they would double-track or triple-track your voice? Oh, yes. In, in fact, every, every album, every song we did, there would be multiple Ron Dante voices on it with my, uh, my, my great friend Tony Wine doing the girl voices. But, yeah, we put three or four or five voices on each record uh, to, to give it that kind of sound. You know, there's a kind of a sound when you multi-track the voice, mm-hmm. and it, it gives it a new personality almost. It takes it away from the single voice, which it c- communicates very well and sounds great, but when, when, you, tra- when you track it, 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 it really sounds uh, beautiful, and uh, it's, it's, it, it gets its own personality. Uh, same thing with the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys. All those records are multi-tracked, mm. uh, and, and, and it, gives, it, it, it brings a new sound to the records. And I used to love doing it. On my Cufflinks record, I put maybe 25 voices on there. I, want, I wanted to sound like the Association. I love the Association records. I love the multi-tracking they did on their stuff. It sounded so beautiful. So on Tracy, I, I did lots of backgrounds, three or four background parts uh, going on at the same time as I sing lead. I guess it would have been embarrassing to have played a demo for a potential artist, and they say, you know, that lead singer is really great, but boy, whoever's doing the backing vocals, that's who I want. <laughs> I want the backing <laughs> <laughs> Bounces me off the ceiling, Tracy, day after day, 
When you're this way, I get a love and feeling. Come with me. Don't say no. Hold me close. Chasey, never let go. Chasey, you're gonna be happy with me. I'll build a world around you, filled with love everywhere. Welcome back to the Saturday Morning Jukebox Legend Spotlight. You, you did uh, just dozens of commercials. I mean, probably people are out there, they're listening to this, don't even realize the commercials that you did that are kind of a, as much a part of the fabric of their lives as, as the songs that you sang, right? Oh, yes. I mean, when I do my live shows, uh, I actually do a five-minute commercial medley, oh, which, uh, which a good friend of mine used to do. Uh, it just, it works. Because people remember remember the Dr. Pepper commercial, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, he's sure. a pepper. They remember, uh, you deserve a break today. They remember that. They remember uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. They, you know, but all the things I sang for, I just chose five or six that I like. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. <laughs> you know, different little things, you know, I'm Enjoy commercials. Uh, it, it, it's a fun thing to do. And uh, they're like hit songs, little commercials. They are. They're they're like thirty second, one minute spots mm. that have to have a hook, and have to be memorable. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's kind of, that kind of art has died out. Uh, you don't hear right. that many uh, commercials anymore. That uh, the musical commercials. It's all spoken uh, and visual. But uh, my, in my time, uh, you know, the McDonald's commercials were like hit songs. We're talking with uh, Ron Dante, and, and Ron, also, you got into producing artists. Uh, talk to us about the jump from uh, demo singer to voice of the Archies, uh, commercial voices, to, to uh, becoming a, a producer. How'd that all come about? Well, as I learned at the foot of great producers, I, I listened, I would stay in the studio booth and, and see their techniques and watch them, watch the way everybody had a different technique. And everybody brought their own personality to their their productions, and I learned from them, from them. Mm. And uh, I, I, I knew that uh, singing wasn't enough; that uh, you had to become, uh, you know, uh, create your own uh, art. So I, I became a producer. I started to put my money into producing other artists, which a lot of my artist friends said, "Oh, how can you how can you produce another male singer? Don't don't you have an ego?" And I said, "No, no, I can I can 
submerge my ego because I'd like to be, you know, do more. You, right. know, you don't have to just sing. You can produce and write and do things. So I, w I looked around for new artists to produce. And uh, one, one time I was singing a commercial, and the commercial, was, his name was Barry Manilow. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he was working with Bette Midler at the time, uh, being her piano player and arranger. And he said, I'd really like to be a solo artist. And I listened to a couple of his songs. He played me Could It Be Magic? And I said, well, I, that's a great song. Sure. That could win a Grammy. I said, but nobody's producing you. I'll produce you. So we went into the studio. About a year later, we, 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 we were on the charts. And uh, at one point in 1975, January, Mandy hit. Oh. And, and it, it just propelled his career into a 40-year career. It just It's one of those magic records, magic studio things that happened. Great song, great singer. And I, I had to make sure I didn't hurt the production. You don't overwhelm the singer. You know, do no harm right. is my motto as a producer. Feature the singer and the song. And that's what happened on Mandy. You also sang backing tracks, backing vocals on Mandy. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Actually, the big choir you hear on Mandy or I Write the Songs, the, wow. big, the choirs that are singing, that's just Barry Manilow and I. Oh, that's man. The two of us multi-tracking our voice maybe two dozen times. I sang high, he sang low, I sang mid, he sang low. <laughs> You know, it was that kind of thing, and and the sound worked. You know, it just that our voices blended with his lead voice, and it gave it it gave the track some uh, substance in terms of uh, backing voices. Uh, it, it wasn't alien to his voice. It it blended and it complemented his lead voice, which was magical. I mean, you know, Barry has a beautiful, oh, yeah. beautiful singing voice. You really believe his lyrics and and the songs that he sings. It's like he's singing them right to you. At least the fans feel that. Yeah. 
You know, Barry, uh, Manlow sometimes gets a rap out there you know, of being kind of a difficult artist, you know, somebody that's kind of set in his ways. What was he like? What was your impression of, of working with him? What was he like? Well, from, from my point of view, it was pure joy. Uh-huh. Barry was a background guy, a piano player, arranger, singer, songwriter. Mm-hmm. He came out of the background of, of doing jingles and things. He was a pro at that. And he was part of the band. And uh, working with him, we never had a conflict. I mean, we did 10 albums together, hmm. uh, and that meant maybe once in a while, you know, the, the track wasn't working when we're trying to record the track with the band. But we never had any problems. He was a joy to work with. He, he, was, he was funny and, and uh, patient and, uh, you know, took, took my lead when I said, you know, we need more of this. We have to do this. The drum has to be bigger in Mandy, you know. Yeah. There's, a, there's a big drum in that, and that was my idea. So he was easy to work with. Uh, success did not change him in, in the recording studio. What was that like to actually? It's one thing to have your career skyrocket, right? You're all of a sudden you got the number ones, but now all of a sudden you're a producer and you're on the ground floor with a guy like uh, Barry Manilow, and all of a sudden you see what you guys are doing together shoots to the top. And I'm not just saying once or twice, but as you said, you worked nine albums with him. I mean, he was as hot as it got for a while. What was that whole uh, thing like for you as a producer? Well, it was just uh, a dream come true to, to be able to know that the work you're doing was going to be heard by millions of people. Uh, at one point, we had 18 singles in a row that were hits. Mm. Right, every single made the charts. Some went top ten, some went number one, but all of them made the charts big time. And uh, it was just a great ju- dream job. I mean, it, was, it, was, it, it fulfilled a lot of my expectations on knowing that you know, if you put good work in and if you find the right artist... Uh, you can you can sustain, and uh, we sustained. He was he was the top artist in the 70s uh, every year on Billboard's chart. At the end of the year, top male artist was Barry Manilow, and it, it felt great. Uh, and I I knew we had to keep upping our game and find the very best songs. If Barry couldn't write them, which he wrote a couple of the big hits, Copacabana, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, it's a miracle. It's, uh, could it be magic? Was an unbelievable breakthrough for him. Uh, but we would go outside and find the songs because there were great songwriters in the world that were sending us songs every week. Mm. So we would go through them, find the right ones for Barry, like Weekend in New England or Can't Smile Without You. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful time to be in the music business, because everything came together. Do it. 
We're certainly enjoying our conversation with the one and only Ron Dante. And John and I would love it if you'd stick around for our final segment. I'll go with Cheryl. I don't blame you. The doctor wants to check your trapezium and your trapezoid. Will he ask you to remove your clothes? What is the trapezium? Your behind? No, no, no. <laughs> now back to Talk and Tunes. Talking tunes, and we're talking with John Russell and Rick Hickman about some of their wonderful interviews that they did back in the day when they did the Saturday morning jukebox. Last guy on the list I got here, Ron uh, Dante. Ron Dante. Welcome back to the Saturday Morning Jukebox Legend Spotlight. You know, when we hear producer, the word producer, you know, a lot of folks out there, they hear it, they say, okay, yeah, that, that guy's a, a big deal on the, on, the, on the record or putting it together. What define what, what, a, what a, you know, your, your job would be as a producer? Well, it, it, it's, it's like the director of a movie, hmm. only it's audio. You choose every element that goes into it, from the script, which is the song, to uh, the cameraman, which is the engineer, the sound engineer, to the, the, the set, which is the recording studio. All of it's related to the same kind of production techniques. You have to, you have, you're building a visual picture, only it's audio. Mm. And uh, the producer, I chose the songs, I chose the singers, the studio, the arrangers, uh, the, type, the type of sound that would, it would have, starting from financing it in front to getting it released, being the businessman on the other end, getting it released on a record label and then helping promote it. So the producer does just about everything except sing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes you sing if, right. you're, if you're producing yourself, <laughs> right? Exactly. So uh, it, it's, it's, a one, it's like, it's like uh, Orson Welles once said, directing movies like having a big, big train set that you're in control with. And it's the same thing with, with uh, producing a record. Every producer is a little different, though. Some producers come out of the engineering field, sure. where they're audio-oriented, like Phil Ramone, is a famous, famous uh, engineer producer right. who owned a recording studio, did Billy Joel and Paul Simon and, you know, Sinatra. He, wonderful producer, Phil Ramone. Other producers, I came out of the artist end of it where I'm, I'm you know i come from the singer's point of view right. uh, I'm, I'm not so concerned with the bass as i am with the singer you know right. so there's a different production technique for every every producer but that's the way i produce you know rick and i always kid around about you know a producer or whatever the guy that actually says you know what this song needs it needs triangle right here or a kazoo right <laughs> i mean that's not too far-fetched is it more bass yeah <laughs> I, I know some producers some producers are so insecure, I won't name names, right. but they're hit producers, but they're so insecure that if the guy who's cleaning up the ashtrays in the, in the studio says, you know, it needs more bass, the producer goes hey, to the engineer, you know, we need a little more bass. <laughs> you know, some of those guys are like that. You know, they, t- they, don't, they take everybody's word, you know. Yeah. I, I'm very isolated. When I produce a record, I'm, I'm just focused on that. I don't listen to everybody else's music on the radio or favorite stuff. Mm. I just focus in and, and narrow cast 
the production so that it is unique and original to what we're thinking. I ended up producing tons of other people. I worked, you know, I worked with Cher and Pat Benatar and Irene Cara. And it, was, it, was, it was a great run as a producer. I still produce today because it, it's so much fun to produce records. You know, you mentioned Cher, and of course she had so many lives in music. I mean, you know, there was her as a, a backup singer uh, for uh, Phil Spector, the Ronettes, I believe, and then her and Sonny got together, and then she had that fine solo career in the early 70s, and then still doing stuff today. At what point did you work with her in her career, Ron? Uh, she had uh, split from Sonny, and she was dating uh, uh, Gene Simmons. Mm. And uh, actually, both of those guys came to the studio when I was working with her here in California. And she threw them out. She said, get out. I'm working with Ronnie. Uh, it, we, we're making records. And that, that, the, the cuts I did with her ended up on the Take Me Home album. Ah. So, so that was the point. Uh, that was her point in career. And she was also a dream uh, job. First of all, she's beautiful. Mm. Second of all, she's funny. And third of all, she sings really great, and she's a real professional she showed up every day at the same time said let's work we we recorded all our songs and and it was it was easy it was really easy we had a lot of fun i remember thinking i'm sitting next to share in the studio and i have to pinch myself sometimes <laughs> because it's share you know, not, not as if you know it's, it's like this, this girl from down the street it's one of the most famous women in the world you know and she's beautiful and, and, and it's like oh my goodness it was just an amazing experience with her. I, I just loved her. I thought she was just a, a gentle, beautiful woman and uh, great to work with. Oh, baby. 
from gigs in California to the Legends of Rock cruise, you're also picking and choosing some great live dates to perform these days. Yes, live is looking very good. I'm doing two two gigs this uh, this month here in Los Angeles, I'm not, and I'm doing a show tomorrow night with uh, Julian uh, Bard, uh, John Lennon's half sister. Yeah. We'll be there signing books at the Crest Theater in Los Angeles. So I'm looking forward to that. The Mersey Beatles from Liverpool are going to be there with me. Wow. Working on that. I'm doing a couple cruises next year. Legends of Rock, March 18th. I'm doing a big cruise with uh, Lou Graham and. Uh, bunch of people that I'm looking forward to. And next year, uh, look for me next summer. I'll be on the Happy Together Tour with the Turtles. Yes. Fantastic. And I have to tell you that John and I have been equally blessed to have interviewed Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, and I reached out to them in anticipation of this to let them know you were coming on the show. And they said, hey, we love Ron. Tell him we said hi. Oh, that's very nice of them. They are, they are super talented people and super people. I mean, just their legends will go on and on and on. I mean, they, they, the most performed song in the world, I think, is You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Correct. I mean, it's just, it'll never go away. It's a, it was a moment that they, they created something that will live forever. And, you know, you've, you've had such a, a varied career, and we'll wrap this up here, uh, Ron, but, um, you know, even we didn't even touch really on the producing on Broadway and things like that, but is there one thing, like if you could go back and do it all over again, is there something that you say, man, you know, I kind of missed the boat on that, I wish... I wish my career would have kind of taken that uh, that path. Is there one thing out there like that? You know, I wouldn't change a thing. Mm. Uh, life led me to each experience. I said yes to it, and it worked. And when it didn't work, I learned from it. So there were no losses. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very blessed and very happy with my career. And, and I, I still think I have an, another good second half in me. You never can tell. You know, yeah. life expectancies have gone up. You never can tell. Exactly. And folks can go to your website, right, and uh, check out yeah. what you got going on. Oh, yeah, it'll all be there. And on my Facebook, go to Ron Dante and the Archies, or just Ron Dante, and you'll see me, and I'll, I, I make a lot of friends each day. And we thank you so much for sharing your valuable time and your valuable life story with our audience today. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. I love going over these things. I, the questions were perfect. Thank you.
Pittsburgh put him on the map. Well, I, I can see John here. He's he's like holding himself. He has to go. <laughs> well, so. I, I'd do that anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> it's lonely. <Yeah. laughs> I can hear the chickens calling you. So, <laughs> but I do. I do really appreciate. Even though it only took what three or four times of losing you on the phone but hey we we got it we got it all together here and got it got it done so that i appreciate that we had a lot of fun fun. together it was uh it was uh we'd been together like 20 years i think or it seemed like it anyhow and yeah uh, we were closing in on 24 yeah when they finally when rick decided to retire and said hey i've had enough of this so (laughs) we got to do this again because she said you have Rick Scott's some stuff that we interviews yeah, and stuff that we talked about. Yeah. You've got some more, so yeah, we'll have to get together. I'll have to come up there and get a drive and get some stuff. And hey, we we could still live on the radio, Rick. Who yeah, what but, you, you can know. do, John, is if you want to send me the list of stuff you give to Oscar, if I've got anything extra beyond that, okay, then you know I can just email it to you. Or, okay, you yeah. know, oh, you'd send it in a in a flash drive it over or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know at least my uh, my sister will hear it, so it'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, his sister loves us. Uh. <laughs> now she loves me, no, but you know, I'm she, disappointed because I was hoping it was your niece. Yeah. <laughs> I can always tell her to start listening. Yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> John really has to go because yeah. I'm spitting on him now. So yeah, there you that's go. Right. I got I got my mask and goggles on. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you can only expect so much out of a bladder. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice talking to you, Rick. We don't do this nearly enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll gotta do it again. Big thanks to Rick for uh, chiming in this time and John Russell, of course, like always. And, uh, sharing some of those wonderful interviews we've had in the past, and they've got more. So uh, yeah, stay tuned. Talking tunes. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from from John and Rick. Talk and tune.